Welcome to the Ryder Cup Radicals, a limited run podcast series from Golf Digest that will run in the lead up to this year's Ryder Cup in Rome. In our debut episode, writers Shane Ryan, Luke Cardina, and Joel Beal discuss the ramifications of Live Golf on the European and United States teams. The group also gets into why a little publicized exhibition in the winter could have big impact on Team Europe and the roster dilemma facing the United States. You can subscribe to the Ryder Cup Radicals on Golf Digest's local knowledge feed with our debut episode appearing in the loop feed as a preview. Thanks for listening and enjoy. For allied rivals, all roads lead to Rome and eternal glory. everybody this is shane i am here with luke and joel we are the Ryder cup radicals brand new podcast from golf digest you may be asking yourself what are the Ryder cup radicals good question uh the head boss at golf digest stormed into the building about a week ago and said i need my three greatest Ryder cup minds for a podcast he got them all together they were unavailable for various reasons <laughs> and so the three of us <laughs> were chosen to to pick up the banner and ride with it but no for real we are huge Ryder cup obsessives uh, and for the next three months, we are going to be dropping these podcasts every so often. Uh, it's going to be an immersive experience. We are not in the same physical space right now, but we will be in Italy together. We're going to be at Hoy Lake together for the Open Championship. And so, you know, if you are at all into the Ryder Cup or if you want to get into the Ryder Cup, we're basically all you need for the next three months. You don't need any other friends. You don't need family. You just need us. This is a quasi-spiritual, quasi-religious Ryder Cup experience. Luke. I want to start with you, my friend. Uh, how are you feeling? Uh, you know, just great to be back on the on the podcast airwaves with you, sir. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be back with you guys too on the airwaves. Yeah. Um, how am I feeling? I, I feel like uh, I feel all right. I, I I've rounded it into the part of my mood now pre-Ryder Cup where I've talked myself into a certain European victory. I was pretty down in the dumps there for you know a couple months or so, but I'm fully on the I'm fully on the, um, you know, Moronk bandwagon. You know, I think Tommy Fleetwood's a major away from being the world number one. So, no, I, I, I'm, I'm rounding into form here at the right time. I'm so glad we have you. And then for our American partisan, no, I'm just kidding. That's not your role, Joel. You don't have to be <laughs> the flag-toting American. But how are you, Joel? I mean, this is the first time you and I have ever jammed on a podcast together. What a treat. Yeah, I'm a little worried. When I told a few guys in the office we were doing this, like the universal refrain was, Whatever you guys do, just don't get fired. So, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of the what the worry is uh, amongst amongst the crew about what, how this is going to go. And given some of the ideas you sent, I don't think that was uh, ill-founded. So, but yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun. Looking forward to it. Yeah, it's really important we push the boundaries here of good taste, no matter what else happens. If we're not walking that line of getting canceled and or fired, I don't think we're doing the right thing. Um, Let's start, guys. Uh, as as advertised in the headline that a lot of you probably saw, we obviously are going to talk about something that I think hasn't been covered enough uh, in golf this year, which is live golf. Um, I think there's a there's a huge Ryder Cup angle to this, which is that Europe cannot pick is Europe cannot pick basically any live golfer. Like Luke Donald doesn't have that power, and they also don't have the power to automatically qualify because they are no longer members of the European Tour, and the European Tour runs things on that side of the ship. Uh, on the other hand, on the American side, not only uh, can Luke uh, can Zach Johnson pick a live golfer, if you would like, somebody like Dustin Johnson, 
but somebody like Brooks Kepka can also qualify automatically. And right now he's in position to do so. So there is a huge competitive potential imbalance there. And there's a lot of ways we could approach this, but mine would be if you're Zach Johnson, is there some kind of duty of honor or some kind of like debt you owe to the European side, not to take advantage of this sort of artificial thing you have in place, which only exists because the PGA tour doesn't run it. The PGA of America runs it on the American side. I think so. Just for the specter of fairness, because if you look at who this truly affects, it's really just one player on the European side, right? Um, It's Sergio Garcia. Now remember, it's not that all live golfers are banned. It's that those who have surrendered their DP World Tour memberships are ineligible. So I think Thomas Peters, I believe, still has his membership and can theoretically play. Um, but if you look at some of the guys who have gone to live on the European side, aside from Sergio, the only other two viable candidates would be Paul Casey and Ian Poulter. And you know, Casey's been a mess this year. And Poulter, it's funny, Poulter's been sneaky bad at the last few Ryder Cups. I think his last winning year at the Ryder Cup was 2012. So, I mean, it's really just Sergio this effect. Um, and if you did a live golf ban, though, I mean, the United States has probably impacted more as weird as that sounds. They would lose arguably the second best player in the world right now in Brooks Kepka. Uh, it knocks out DJ, a guy who went 5-0 at the at Whistling Straits at the last Ryder Cup. Even Bryson's becoming a bit of a dark horse the way he's played the past couple majors. If he plays well at Hoylake, I think he's in there. So, um, But going back to what you said, should Zach Johnson abide by this? I feel like he should just because if – the United States does win even with one live or two live players on the team. Folks are going to put an asterisk on it. And I, it's, I don't think that's necessarily in the sphere of the, of the Ryder cup that one team should be playing by a different set of rules. So if you're, if Europe can't pick their live guys, I don't think us should either. I don't know. I, yeah, I, I agree with you, Joel, in the sense that like, I don't think this is as big a deal for Europe as maybe we thought it may have been. I actually think it's a good thing for Europe, like shocker. But, um, you know, at the last Ryder Cup, I wrote this column and I still believe it is that what, what Europe suffered from at the last Ryder Cup is that they had this like this core team right which this this was like the starting lineup they trotted out for every single Ryder Cup and it worked for the most part right um the problem was was the gap between them and then the next men up and then the kind of the young crop of golfers that they were having so um and there was kind of this gap the same way that sometimes like you know this was a famous storyline in like world war ii actually where uh, you had a lot of the would-be generals killed in world war one and you had this big gap this big talent gap between um <laughs> but you know the generals who were too old and, and then the up-and-comers were too young right and i think that that's kind of the situation that europe was in at the last Ryder cup or which to say where you had guys like westwood and casey and polter and yada yada and that just kind of were past their best from a Ryder Cup standing, but then you didn't have the Danny Willits and, and the next generation push on. And so this, I think, had like a Ian Poulter and Sergio Garcia type been eligible to be picked, I think there is potentially like a knee-jerk reaction to be like, ah, maybe we'll just get these guys in the mix to like round out the team. Whereas now I think the European team is actually being forced to like integrate some of these young guys and take a closer look at someone like a, a Seamus Power or a Sepp Straka or things like that. Um, as far as the American side, I, I I don't understand why Zach Johnson would like even 
potentially make his team worse from not picking Livgar. I just don't, I just don't understand the logic there. You know, this isn't the PGA Tour um, running this event. It's PGA of America. I just, I just, I just don't get it personally. But from a European perspective, I actually don't think it matters a whole lot. One thing I thought about Luke, and this is getting a little like. Um... I don't know, like it's mind reading a little bit psychologically, but I personally think that the Americans have great leadership now in the Ryder Cup and are probably going to outgun the Europeans uh, in terms of pure talent. And so I almost wonder if having some kind of perceived uh, injustice like this or imbalance or unfairness almost unifies them in some way, gives them something to kind of cohere around. Because I think if the Europeans are going to win, it's going to be because they come together in some like, greater than the sum of our parts type way. And so like anything that feeds into that narrative that makes them the underdog, I almost like think kind of sneakily benefits them in some, in some way. Yeah, no, I think there's, there's always going to be that like insurgent feeling. Just the fact that everyone picks Europe to lose every single Ryder cup. As long as I can remember, Americans have been telling me Europe is going to lose the Ryder cup this year, you know, and um, it's wrong more than it's right. But I actually think that, I, I don't know, like, I just think we're just entering a new generation of a European style team where it used to be that the top and the bottom of the order were quite similar. You know, there wasn't a huge amount of difference between like a Luke Donald, a Justin Rose and a Paul Casey. And, you know, so they weren't like transcendent stars, but they were all quite similar, good players. Whereas now it's just a top heavy team between Hovland, Rahm and Rory. Um, And honestly, that's all right. Because as long as you keep some sense of team unity, you're only trotting out you know, you're not trotting out that many players each session. Um, and so you can kind of ride your horses quite a lot. And I think that's just going to have to be the new game plan for Europe. But if they can do that plus cultivate this underdog spirit. In some ways, it's like the best of both worlds. I was thinking about the U.S. thing that you mentioned uh, where, you know, why would you make your team worse by by picking somebody who, you know, wasn't just the best player? And probably the one player that it's going to come down to, Joel, you mentioned Bryson for sure charging maybe he does something unbelievable in the open but right now the big thing is dustin johnson who assuming brooks kepka makes it on points which it seems like he will uh but dustin johnson went five and oh last time he seems to be in decent form right now but the other thing that i keep coming back to is that the guys behind the scenes at the top of this rider cup rider cup captaincy structure Zach Johnson's kind of kept his cards close to the vest, but we know Fred Couples. We know Davis Love. Like, these are PGA Tour guys who weren't shy about defending the PGA Tour, uh, you know, when it was like this PGA Tour live thing was at its, like, most hot. And so when it comes down to it, if it's individual, like, do we take Dustin Johnson or do we take, you know, some guy who stayed with us? I think there may be some, like, huge kind of pull and undertow there that, you know – it it's more than we're considering it. It might like land in the balance in favor of the PGA tour guy. Yeah. I think that also kind of working against Dustin Johnson right now is, you know, if, we, if you asked us to project our U S roster a month ago, Wyndham Clark and Keegan Bradley weren't on those teams. Uh, Wyndham is basically locked his spot up, not only with the U S open win, but um, winning it at Wells Fargo as well. Those two combined, he's, he's basically on the team. Keegan Bradley's all up to number seven now after winning the travelers. So, uh, if those two guys are in the running, that's knocking out two bigger names. And I think that becomes a little easier to justify Dustin not being on the team. He's also the oldest. He was the oldest guy. I think he was the only guy over 32 on the 2021 roster. Um, so I think it's a little easier to, to sell that, hey, this isn't against 
live per se. There's just an abundance of guys that we need to pick. Um, the one kind of wild card is out of all the guys who defected to live, and there still is some animosity uh, between tour guys and live guys. Dustin's the one guy who kind of everyone still respects and likes. So that maybe complicates things a little bit, but um, yeah, if, if he doesn't play well at Hoylake, maybe this isn't even a conversation. I feel like Dustin Johnson is almost, no matter what your like politics or morals are, he's almost the hardest one to like hold to account for going to live. If you disagree with that, because you never expected anything more. <laughs> if that makes sense like like someone like Graham mcdowell for me was the ultimate heartbreak because i always loved Graham mcdowell but you know you know what i mean like there's like somebody like dustin johnson it's like yeah i can't get mad at him like i just i just simply uh i cannot hold that against him that he did that yeah, yeah. I think there's also a sense of he when he left he didn't you know burn any bridges either um he Basically, that this is my decision. It's okay if you don't respect it, but I did it with my family and didn't try to make it out to be anything more. So um, maybe respect's not the right word, but just the fact that he kind of went about his business and didn't try to spite others and wasn't part of the lawsuit. I think that's helped a little bit. And yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It's it seemed when when someone tells you who they are, you have to believe them. I think for years, maybe that we were doing the opposite with Dustin, and this this is exactly kind of everything he told us about himself. It kind of fell in line with that. Yeah, I think it's just like, it's it's also a good lesson just generally that like, you should just be honest about your intentions. And for all Dustin Johnson's faults, he was never not honest during all of this, right? He just said, yeah, I went for the money. And then like, when they asked if you want to sue, he's like, no, nah, I'm happy about my PGA Tour career, but I'm just happy about the money now. And so I think what you saw a lot of the blowback from fans coming from was this trying to tote the party line and trying to be smarter than the questions that were being asked of them and like the classic botched Graham McDowell answer or the classic botched like Ian Porter. Those were when you started seeing blowback, but you couldn't accuse uh, Dustin Johnson of being hypocritical because he's just been blunt, honest the entire time. Yeah. And it was the hypocrisy, wasn't it? That was like the, the biggest, it was the sense that people were lying or, we're trying to put a sheen on what was a financial decision that was the most offensive part of it. Totally. Um, but yeah, no, I think you, you make a good point though, Joel. Like, I don't know, when I look at that US team, not to be disrespectful to our most recent US Open champion or Travelers champion, but you don't necessarily want like Wyndham Clark and Keegan Bradley taking up two different automatic spots like right now, or rather locking in two different automatic spots right now, um, simply because they could go on to be like stalwarts at the top of the official world golf rankings for years, right? But I think what we've seen, at least from both of them so far, is that they're, they're good players who are playing exceptionally well right now. And that may not be true in October. It's the classic kind of uh, form is temporary, class is permanent problem, right? So I think if I'm Zach Johnson, what I would want is I would want the hot hand. I would want to have to choose between the hot hands, basically. You know, I would want my like, quote unquote, best players, your Justin Thomas types, who you know what you're going to get with a guy like Justin Thomas, even though he's playing quite poorly right now. You would not want to be in a situation where you need to pick him on the team right you want to be in a situation where you look at someone like Wyndham Clark and Keegan Bradley and pick the one who's playing better of the two right um you don't really want to have to use your captain's picks on players who 
you sort of expect should be in the team, but are experiencing a temporary dearth of form. Yeah, I agree. I, I think what's so interesting, both teams now have adjusted to having six captains picks, which all this, you know, their, their stats crews are amazing. And all the stats say the more captains picks, the better, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we haven't seen uh, in this era is people really going down the list. Okay, so the U.S. stuck with the six captains picks in Whistling Straits and basically took, I, I forget the exact numbers, but I think it was like seven through 13 or something. Like maybe they skipped number 12 and maybe it was Patrick Reed because he was sick, right? So there wasn't really any deviation from the actual list. But Luke, to your point, it's like, yeah, what if Keegan Bradley finishes seventh on the list and all of a sudden is in terrible form? Let's say he misses three cuts in the playoffs going into the Ryder Cup. Are we are we going to see this time, and the same could be true on the European side, are we going to see them take advantage of the fact that this is why we have the system in place and we're going to skip the, the guy who is number seventh on the list who would have qualified for literally every other Ryder Cup in history except 2020 or 2021 and go down and really pick and choose. This is a whole new era, and it's a whole new kind of um, – it's not so much boldness, but it's going to take some like a, a tiny bit of ruthlessness for a captain to do that, right, to skip over guys who are like inches from qualifying where that wouldn't have been the case if someone fits, you know, finished 11th and when you have like only two captain's picks. So mm-hmm. I, I'm kind of I'm curious to see how that will play out as well. Right. And you have to remember that the reason why this situation exists is because the qualification system is weighted towards the Ryder Cup year. Like Keegan Bradley is the 12th highest ranked American in the official world golf rankings right now. That's excluding all the live guys for obvious reasons. Right. So like he's not making this team if you just go straight down the official world golf ranking. But he's currently in seventh place right now because he just won the Travelers, and that happens to be during like mid-year during a Ryder Cup year. And so, you know, it just might not be true in October that Keegan Bradley is as playing as good as golf is right now. So it's yeah, you do need a ruthless streak, I think, in order in order to put the best team together. It's sort of the drawback of having lots of captains picked, right? Is that like you have the freedom to make these decisions, but then you have to also own these decisions. Joel, what do you think about Keegan in general? I mean, he was somebody match play wise who, you know, obviously had an amazing time at Medina with Phil, you know, did pretty well at Glen Eagles. And since then has lost something like 95% of the match play golf that he's played. And most of that in the, in the singles match play in, in Austin, but he also doesn't seem to be part of the core crew uh, in a way that he used to back when he was friends with Phil Mickelson and seemed like he was one of the cool kids. I mean, in general, do you think like, you know, putting yourself in the mind of Zach Johnson, do you want Keegan on the team? Good question. I mean, definitely his, his form as of late, I think he would. I think it's good to have a guy who is as fiery uh, as Keegan. I think not that you ever break up Justin Thomas and Jordan Speed, but I think having another guy with that Thomas type of zest and spirit is not the worst of things, um, especially when you're going to be on the road. Uh, kind of the problem, though, is you mentioned earlier that you want your those those guys that are considered class, like Spieth and, and Thomas, to be your automatics. If you're taking two of your captain's picks with them, let's just be honest. Like, no matter how bad they're playing, both of those guys are going to make it. Because, yes, this is a competition, but it's also an exhibition. And you better believe the people who hold the TV rights are going to push for two of the biggest names in golf to be at the Ryder Cup. And that's what kind of brings in Ricky Fowler into this as well. The way Ricky's playing, his his play probably merits consideration as is. I think he's 16th right now in standings, um, in U.S. standings. 
But if it comes down to a, a he, the last guy it's between him, Denny McCarthy, you know, Kirk Hitayama, like Fowler's going to get that call, not necessarily just because of his play and how, how his relationship is with a lot of the core guys, but Ricky Fowler's a, a better sell to the American audience. So like the fact that you now are using maybe three picks on guys you kind of have to have for marketing reasons, uh, I think in that standpoint, maybe Keegan doesn't look as attractive and you'd rather have somebody who's kind of coming in form hot from July and August in, but I mean, Keegan is the one guy really in his late thirties. I'd be on this team. This is a very young, young team. Basically Kepka is the oldest guy at the moment in terms of the automatic qualifiers. Uh, if you think Finau is still in the mix, he he's in his mid thirties uh, as well, but maybe Keegan gives you a little bit of veteran presence, but at the same time, you guys have, you have Thomas and Spieth and even Cantley and, and Shoffley at this point have enough experience in the Ryder Cup and, and President's Cup that maybe you don't need that that older voice in there. But um, I, I think Keegan's making it a lot more interesting than people realize. I agree with you that you don't need it. I think we, the same questions came up at Whistling Straits, like, who's the leader here? Who's the leader on this team? And they don't need one. These guys are they're all leaders in their way. But Joel, and I, I asked this question from a place of ignorance. Do you really think that there is somebody or or an entity with an in to like U.S. captaincy that can that can nudge them in the direction of a more marketable person? Or do you I be, like I had never heard that before. I, I was on the impression that like they pretty much have autonomy. But do you think like there is some kind of engine of influence there that says, hey, Ricky Fowler's close. Let's let's get him on there. I- only get hurts by any means right if it comes down to a toss-up I, I think those considerations have to be made and let's be honest ricky fowler is one of the most well-liked guys on tour too so it's not like you're Definitely. shoehorning somebody uh i'm not going to say who but like it's not like you're shoehorning a divisive personality in there it's, it's a guy who's very well liked but i think to say that does hit ricky's marketability doesn't play any factor i think that's that's not quite right either yeah yeah i buy that um Okay, let's let's move on from the live talk. My idea for this was that we'd have these like little interludes in between our main points of conversation. And so like for the first one, um, I thought we could do, you know, we're all going to be in Italy and hopefully we'll have a little bit of time to see the country. I've never been there before. I don't know if you guys have, but um, something Italian that we like. Something, you know, like something this is this is our segment here. What's an Italian thing that you like? And then after we do this, I've got uh, a segment of my own called the boring Italian fact of the day that I'm going to do and, and force you guys to react to. But whoever wants to start, go ahead. Like, what is what is an Italian thing you love that gives you a connection to the to the old country? Um, so I'll, I'll jump in. So I, I was thinking about this because you gave us a heads up before. And I, while I truly love the um, like afternoon espresso tradition, uh, in, in Italy, one thing I realized I like even more is what Italians put in espresso, and that thing is sambuca. I just love it. I think Ooh. it's such an underrated liqueur. It's delicious. It's fun. <laughs> you can have it flamed. What other alcoholic beverage can you have flamed? Um, it's it's incredible. I just think it, I, I don't fully understand why it hasn't caught on more, but I just think it's such a criminally underrated beverage. So, Luke, I don't think I, I don't think I've ever had it. Oh my, oh my Lord. I don't think I've ever had Sambuca. I love the name and I like the sound of it, but I've never had it. Do you think when we're in Hoy Lake, that Hoy Lake is known for its Sambuca tradition? (laughs) There is a huge, there is a huge Sambuca subculture in Hoy Lake. (laughs) 
<laughs> There's like one guy who loves it. <laughs> he won't shut up about it. That's, that's that's a really good one. I like that. I'm definitely gonna have a sambuca in Italy. Uh, Joel, what do you got? I feel like we just came up with our own business idea. Like, screw the rest of the podcast. I think we should go into Sambu- <laughs> Sambuca. <laughs> the Sambuca Boys, the Golf Digest podcast. <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, I'm a big Barada guy. I fell in love with Barada when I moved up, up to New York, uh, which I know <laughs> it's an Italian thing, but there's a lot of Italian joints uh, in New York City. And uh, I probably eat Barada two or three times a week, which may explain why I've gained 50 pounds in the last six or seven months. But uh, yeah, I'm a, I can't wait to go for some real burrata when we get there this is this is gonna sound so ignorant but what is burrata i don't eat and i love italian food i don't know what it is it is cheese they basically made it from milk it's cow italian cow goat i think or it's cow goat. Italian cow goat. <laughs> <laughs> what about the italian cow goats for a name <laughs> Obviously. Uh, but it's uh, very creamy i uh, usually uh, goes with a little bit of uh bruschetta it's it's yeah, really it's cool. like it's like you know those like bowls of mozzarella that you can yeah. get from store. It's sure, like, yeah. It's it, it's like those except when you cut into it, it's like lava that pours out because Ooh. they cut the mozzarella cheese with like cream, I believe. You know, so it like loosens it all up. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it's that sounds. Fab- it's fabulous. We'll get you, Shane. We'll get you a sambuca. We'll get you a burrata. <laughs> we'll like talk loudly at each other. We'll do all sorts of Italian stuff. <laughs> Just me walking into a cafe, like, I'll have one Sambuca and one Italian cow goat, please. <laughs> um, yeah, good, very good, Joel. Mine is a word, and that word is one I got from The Sopranos, but also from a show that we that we all like called The Bear, uh, which we've all been into lately. And that word is madon, madon. Um, and I didn't realize what it was for the longest time, but it's like an exclamation of, like, saying, oh, my God. And it's like, madon. Um, and what it is, it's apparently religious in origin. It's M-A-D-O-N. It's like a shortening of like saying the Madonna or whatever, but it's kind of like this very guttural, like, you know, Tony Soprano saying it sounds incredible. And so I don't know what the rules are here. Again, we talked about potentially getting fired or canceled, but to the extent that I'm allowed, I'll have to consult, but to the extent that I'm allowed to say this, I would like to start saying it. You guys think that's, uh, that's doable? I think you say it after you take your first sip of Sambuca and just <laughs> my own. Yeah. It can, Cause it can be used that way. Like this is so good. Like it has, it's like the F word. It has like a ton of uses. It can mean basically anything. Um, all right. I want to give you guys my boring Italian fact of the day, uh, which is that unlike the rest of Europe, Italian rear license plates have a blue strip on the left and right side. Most of the rest of Europe has it only on the left side. What do you think about that, Joel? How much time did you spend uh, going down this research? This actually comes from me playing GeoGuessr, which is like a, a late obsession of mine. So I didn't even have to research it. It's just in the old it's in the old brain storage bin. <laughs> what's what's the reason? Do we know? Is it just a just a just an observation? I just think they're unique. They're unique, you know. And I think they. I don't know. I don't. Yeah, I don't know the answer, but it, it fits. I think. By the way, speaking of transportation, we're we are getting Vespas when we get to Italy, correct? <laughs> I want one of us to die in a Vespa. I don't think the trip is a success if one of us. <laughs> well, we should definitely do a podcast from a Vespa. Just the 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 biggest shit show of all time. <laughs> I would love that. I would love. That. <laughs> Just like ripping takes about Wyndham Clark's foursomes chances from the yeah. back of a Vespa. <laughs> As you're ripping Zambuca. Yeah. No. Um, 
<clears throat> oh, my brain is slipping right now, but who's the German documentary director who does like all the extreme like films? You know what I'm talking about? Um, oh, Werner Herzog. Yeah. So he did he did a movie with um, <laughs> about a guy who lived with grizzly bears. And like the guy got eaten by grizzly bears and apparently it was recorded and Werner Herzog didn't play the recording in his documentary, but he did listen to it and film himself listening to it. And so I'm having imagining that we do a podcast on a Vespa and we crash <laughs> one or more of us perish on this Vespa crash, but we have the audio and we're like, you know, I think Joel would have wanted us to play this for our audience. <laughs> uh. Just make okay. sure to drop some Barada on my coffin and go by. <laughs> this, is, this is what he would have wanted. Uh, okay, so back on serious topics. Luke, I think you're going to like this one. Um, there used to be uh, a, a thing called the Seve Trophy in Europe, which was a Ryder Cup-style competition between Great Britain and Ireland on one side and continental Europe on the other side. And the idea was not only, you know, honor Seve with the name and all that stuff, but it was a proving ground both for players and for captains. And as an example, like Paul McGinley was really, really good in this. And he's somebody who's playing pedigree. You wouldn't say, oh, he's going to be a Ryder Cup captain. But because he did so well in this, he did have an in, you know, an inside track to that and became a Ryder Cup captain. And so they found that very useful. And at some point it went away. Now, the U.S. has the President's Cup, of course. And back when U.S. Ryder Cup leadership was a shambles, when they did just about everything wrong, it didn't really matter that they had the President's Cup. It wasn't much of an advantage. Now it is because they are basically having the same captains over and over. Uh, it is a continuous system. They work with the same stats crew. So it's this big edge to have this off-year tournament. So in response to that, a number of European people, including Paul McGinley, Jose Maria Olathabal, pushed for the Seve Trophy to come back. And it did this year in January. And it was called the Hero Cup now. It was held in Abu Dhabi. Um, just to give you all a few details about that, Continental Europe uh, beat Great Britain and Ireland. Uh, Francisco Molinari was the playing captain for Europe. Uh, Tommy Fleetwood for Great Britain and Ireland was the playing captain. Uh, but it wasn't just those guys there. There was, you know, Luke Donald was there. Jose Maria Olathabla was there. All the vice captains, Nicholas Colsarts, Thomas Bjorn, Eduardo Molinari, Paul McGinley was there. There were these daily meetings. There was advice going back and forth. It was truly like a trial run for the Ryder Cup not just for the captains, again, to give the rookies a chance. Um, from what I'm hearing, there are a few people stuck out. Matt Wallace, Victor Perez, Bob McIntyre, Luke, one of your favorites, Adrian Moronk, apparently was really impressive. Uh, and I, I just wanted to kind of get your take on that. It seems to me like a no-brainer and like a really good idea. But, I mean, you know, is it is it really important to do that? And is it also a sign that Europe kind of is like, crap, the U.S. keeps getting better and better. We better have every bit of infrastructure in place that we can to compete with these guys. Yeah, I always thought it was a shame that the Seve Trophy went away. I mean, I grew up watching it. It was a really big deal. And it just kind of dissipated because as more and more pros kind of moved to America, uh, <clears throat> it was just one of these casualties that fell by the wayside as, you know, pros started following the money out on the PGA Tour. Um, I think the key differential it had against something like the President's Cup was that the President's Cup isn't really competitive, right? Like um, that can work, that, that can be good and bad, I think, for, for the American team. It can kind of just be this like <laughs> once every two year morale boost, like momentum builder thing, which is what I think it's turned into. Um, the Sebi Trophy was like sharp competition though. And you really did get a look at a bunch of these guys who took it really seriously. And um, I think the biggest asset it was both 
for Europe and what the President's Cup is for America. It just allows you to tinker around with pairings, right? Especially with your big guns. Um, we don't necessarily know who like Rory plays best with. We kind of think Shane Lowry, but a few years ago it was Thomas Peters, you know, like, and it would be cool if we actually got to a place where Rory was like every other, every non-Ryder Cup year, he was like playing in, in a Seve Trophy style event. So, um, you know, that's what I think the biggest, asset of it is and I, I i i'm a believer in that we should use these off years for something um to sort of blood the truth so i got, I got a couple of takes and, and a couple of questions as well i agree with what you said luke my one question is do you think it helped or hurt that essentially every top european player did not play in this so rory didn't play rom didn't play hovland didn't play and i, I don't think fitzpatrick played i think well, Fleetwood was one of the captains, and I think Hatton outside of that was like the next best player. Do you think that would have helped, or it actually kind of opened up a spot for guys who, you know, all those those four guys I just named are are, are going to be on the team already? Do you think it they should have been there, or do you think their absence kind of allowed that allowed the European team to maybe look and scout a few other guys who might otherwise not have got the chance had they been there? No, I think it would have been better if they were there for sure. Um, just would have added some intensity to the event and it would have allowed to tinker around with combinations, right? Like you could say like, oh, wow, Rory and Yannick Paul seem to like really hit it off or whatever. Um, you know, when you don't have those guys there, you don't necessarily know who Victor Hovland's like ideal partner in foursomes is going to be. So um, I think it's not surprising, right? Like you can't sunset a tournament after it basically stops working and then bring it back and expect the biggest guns to show up the first time. Um, I think, especially when the schedule's as busy as it is. Um, that said, like the same way it's, it's good that, you know, Tiger Woods used to play in president's cups. I would like it to get to a point where we see Rory McIlroy teeing it up in the hero cup. So my next question is the one thing I think they did well, then maybe it's not a question. Maybe it's just a, a take. The one thing that's always blunt or been a little troubling about the President's Cup is they haven't accepted that it's kind of part of the Ryder Cup cadence and it tries to be its own event. And that can kind of come back and bite the United States because, Luke, as you mentioned, this hasn't really been that competitive. Last year, for example, they had basically two open spots where I would have liked to see the U.S. maybe bring some younger guys in who would have been or, you know, are expected to be part of Team USA for years going forward instead those spots went on kevin kisner and billy horschel who very good players but in their mid to late 30s who shouldn't really be a part of team usa events going forward but i like that what the hero cup did they brought in uh nikolai hogard um rob mcintyre and uh Guido mczoli to like bring them in and kind of get them reps so that was the do you, how how much weight do you put to getting those guys into the system to maybe get them ready for a potential rider cup yeah, I think that is maybe slightly more important for Europe than America, you know, just because the um, like the level of depth isn't quite there. You know, I was talking earlier about how European team, especially this year, is like more top heavy. So you kind of do want to get these guys like obviously you need Matt Wallace, for instance, to like play better, period. But um, you do kind of want matt wallace to like know what it's like to play in Ryder cups play in team formats and in, in order to like you know 
do kind of get out of his comfort zone and allow someone like Rory to play his best game. Like you see this in other sports all the time too, right? Like guys who are picked for national teams and world cups who aren't necessarily making the starting lineup week in, week out for their club. And it's because they can mesh with the team well and they know the team's style of play and the team's tactics and they bring out the best in the star player on the other team. So um, I think it's, I think when you don't have as, you know, the Americans in some way have the luxury of being able to let it be a bit more of a free-for-all, I think, um, because you can just say like, all right, whoever plays best will consider you for a pick. Whereas Europe, you do kind of need like, like an Alex, I know Alexander Norin's older, but like you need a Norin type to like be like getting reps, getting used to like being in a team room with these guys. Mm. I think there's an intangible value. I've got a um, Guido Migliozzi quote here. Uh, John Hogan wrote about the Hero Cup. And Migliozzi, I hope I'm saying that right. He said, I arrived thinking I would give 100% to make the Ryder Cup team in my home country. Now it is 200%. That's got to give you goosebumps, Luke. Oh, can't wait for... Can't, <laughs> I mean, it's just all the stars are aligning, you know? It's just once again. Uh, yeah. We um we talked about U.S. leadership Um when I was at the Wells Fargo uh, earlier this year covering it, there was an announcement made that Jim Furyk would be the next President's Cup captain. And I was like totally stunned by that because I keep waiting for an indication of who the next captains are going to be, right? Obviously, Tiger has it whenever he wants it, probably. Phil was definitely in line, but Phil is who knows anymore, right? For a while, it seemed like he's not in line. Maybe, maybe the reproachment changes that. But I want to read you a list of who the vice captains are for the Ryder Cup, which I thought, again, might tell us who is who is coming down the line. So far, the vice captains for Zach Johnson are Steve Stricker, Davis Love III, Jim Furyk, and Fred Couples. These are all people who have either been a Ryder Cup captain or been President's Cup captains, and often case both. Um, actually, all of them have been both, except for Fred Couples, who's never been a Ryder Cup captain. They're all older. And so all of a sudden, my question to you, I don't want to use the word coup, guys, but is there a new – have these guys taken over? Are they like a board of directors for the Ryder Cup and are going to just like share it between themselves in perpetuity? I mean, this is like very much like the whole line of succession is cut off. I mean, these guys – it's like a monopoly all of a sudden. Joel, I don't know. What's going on? Yeah, what's well, I'm only nodding my head because I wrote about this in 2021, I think, when they announced – uh, Davis Love is the President's Cup captain of this whole U.S. task force was supposed to bring in new blood, new voices, and to kind of keep a rhythm and, and keep a succession line going. And now, like, the, the very thing they were fighting, they've become. Um, now, the counter would be, hey, they've had success really outside of 2018, right? Like, the, the Team USA, has things have been going well. So they could just say, these guys are well-liked, they're well-respected. Why mess with somebody new every year when we know what works? Um, I think especially in terms of Stricker, that's the reason why he's always back. That's, that guy is just like a father to so many so many American tour guys. Um, same with couples. I mean, couples is that uncle that, uh, you know, you kind of get in trouble with, but at the same time you love. He's a little bit of arrested development. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, that would only be the counter of it. It's not like they're bringing these guys back and they're getting their butt whipped every year. There seems to be something good going on, and you do hear – that the locker room has changed, especially since 2014. So if that's the case, things are going good. Maybe why screw with it just to, just to bring new guys in. 
No, I, I agree. And I, I was going to say, I don't think it's bad for Team USA. I mean, I think continuity is a good thing. And like you said, it's success after success after success, barring 2018. Still haven't won in Europe. That's why this, you know, this Ryder Cup is so, the stakes are so incredibly high because until they can win in Europe, you can't really say, okay, they've turned things around and now they are the predominant force in, in Ryder Cup, right? They've kept winning President's Cups. They've dominated at home in Ryder Cups. Um, but it is funny to me. I almost have to tip my cap as to how quiet it's been. If if truly this is the case, right? If truly there's like, you know, the goal is we're going we're gonna to stop the line of succession. We're going to stop the old format and we're going to just control it ourselves. They never said it. Nobody's ever questioned it. And they've kind of successfully done it. Like, like they've, the soft coup has been successful if that's indeed what it was. Um, I don't know, Luke, would you like to see something like that for Europe? I mean, like, would you like to have McGinley or Bjorn back in there? I mean, those guys are, you know, indisputably awesome Ryder Cup captains and probably will never do it again, right? Yeah, I, I kind of like the revolving door thing, personally. Um, you know, I'm not a big fan of, like, repeat captains, just because it's fun to get new players, new players in the mix, new captains in the mix. Um, you know, Europe's going to have to probably do something similar because you know, back to the live stuff, the biggest hit that's going to be for Europe is just cutting off a whole line of succession for like captains and waiting, right? Like I have no idea. Like we may have to go really young with our captains if we're not going to go repeat captains, you know, like we're going to have to get creative with some of this stuff. But um, personally, I I like the revolving door. I think though, I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, Partly because I think one thing that Europe did well that America struggled with was just kind of have people buy into a system you know like you kind of knew the general movements that europe was going to do each Ryder cup you know they were going to field two rookies in the first uh, in in the first session of the day they were going to pair a top guy with a young guy that's the rory peters thing or the you, you know the the westwood sergio thing from back in the day um or even like Sevi, Sevi Olathabal, you could go Sevi all the way Ola back. Thabo, you yeah. go. It was just like yeah. time and time again. This is what they do. They'd pair two rookies. They'd send them out early. They'd they put a young guy with a top guy, and then they'd usually pair some combination of like you know countrymen together, right? Like um, that's where the again it's like a Sevi Olathabal situation, or you know this time it's going to be like Lowry, Rory, probably. Um, you're, you know, some Englishmen like Rose and Casey. So, you know, it, and it was one of these things that everyone knew kind of the movements, everybody knew what you were going to do before the Ryder Cup started going. So you did have the sense of continuity. Maybe the idea with just bringing in Stricker and couples and just kind of constantly revolving it between them is that that is that continuity that I'm talking about it looks a little different, but that's what it, but that's what it looks like on the American side. Yeah. I still think it's better than. You know, for better or worse, for until 2014, the Ryder Cup was a, a captain was basically a ceremonial role, right? It was not this two-year process that it's become. And I think that was one of the big upshots of, of Tom Watson's captaincy. No matter what you thought about him as a, as a leader, it certainly didn't seem like he did his homework going into the event. And while these these names can be repetitive for the U.S. and you might want some new blood in there at the same time like these guys do all to seem to take that responsibility seriously um and they take it as a job as it is so maybe that's the hesitation why uh, but that being said it, it is odd you have no way in their mid early 40s the american side even in the, the 
um, kind of assistant vice captain role. And uh, let's be honest, Phil was probably that guy. I mean, Phil was an assistant at, at Whistling Straits. And the fact that he kind of took himself out of consideration, I think that's maybe why we haven't seen a new guy in, in that role yet. Um, what's fascinating about it to me is that if you look at what we call modern Ryder Cup history, starting with the Tony Jacklin era, Europe has always been ahead with every single innovation, whether that was using more captain's picks, uh, you know, messing with the course ahead of time, uh, on and on and on. They've been, you know, I, I, if I could, you know, consult my book and remember what I'd written, there's probably like a dozen different examples where every single time Europe does it. And then a few years later, America does it. This is the first one I can think of where it may be a really smart innovation that America has done first. I can't think of anything else that that looks like that, where America may have been like closed circuit captaincies, right? That may be like the smart, like take success and ride it and basically softly un undoing uh, years of precedent uh, for that. And I, I don't know. I just think that's a little bit eye-opening because, again, the U.S. has never led the way. And that's why Europe has won so often. Because, you know, if we say like, you know, necessity is the motherhood of invention, Europe may be needed to because they're, there, there was always a talent gap in a lot of years between them and the U.S. Now, you know, the talent gap is still probably on the American side. But if they're innovating more, that, I, I just think that's interesting. Of like, this could be, we could be, we could be in the midst of a sea change and not quite know it yet until after this year. Jane, I guess, I, I guess I don't know why this is an innovation though, Shane. Like, it, in some ways, it's the opposite, right? Like, it's just the same group of guys who are cycling around the thing that they want. Um, I, I actually think in some ways that's more reflective of America's ongoing issue is that they win one, they think they've solved it, they get complacent, they lose one, they freak out, and on and on and on. Um, you know, I, I think something has changed on the American side. Well, I remember when you were writing your first book, um, Slaying the Tiger, like the first, the, a, major, a, a not uncommon thing you'd hear among American golf fans is that captains don't matter, pairings don't matter, singles, lineups don't matter. No mm -hmm. one says that anymore. So they've definitely been pushing the ball forward on, on that side of the house. But I don't know. Th this to me, you could also say that this is just like the early signs of some complacency that the American team does tend to slip into. So my response to that, I don't think, I think you have a point for sure. My response to that is like, let's go back in history to 2008, where Paul Azinger really is the first American captain who considers this thing on a deeper level, right? And he does a really great job. One of the few times that the U.S. team was markedly worse than the European team coming in. On the opposite side, you have Nick Faldo, who was basically like their Tom Watson, great player, horrendous captain. And, and, Fal and Azinger stages this amazing Ryder Cup. He has his pod system. He's thinking deeply, right? And he's innovating. And they win. Now, 2010 comes along, um, and the captain for the U.S. that year was uh, Corey Pavin. He doesn't. He calls Paul Azinger like one time on the phone. He doesn't adopt any of his innovations. He doesn't even think about it. And they go in Europe and lose. And then 2012, you know, Davis Love brings it back a little bit. They lose anyway because of Medina Miracle. Then 2014, Tom Watson does none of it. So my answer to you would be, what you have with continuity is you you get rid of this system where you have a completely new guy coming in who's going to ignore everything that's worked. What you have is like, if you have success, now you're going to build on it and you have the same exact mindset coming through. You're not having a new general every time, have to learn new marching orders. The style is the same. The team room is the same. And, you know, we all know golfers, what they value more than anything is, especially the American, like, I need everything the same. Like, I need to be able to take my nap from 1 to 3 p.m. on Ryder Cup leagues, right? Like, that's, that's like who these guys are. And so 
having that up and down the line from everything from pairing strategy to what kind of food and how we're going to get from the hotel to the, to the clubhouse, all that stuff. It is just continuity. That's all it is. And I think like success builds on success. That way would be my, my, my argument. If I had to say, this is a really good thing, or this is at least a strategically good thing. So off that and Luke brought this up as well. The stigma for the longest of times, at least on the American side was captain seats really don't matter. We've gone kind of in the opposite way. Do you feel like we were maybe making that role to be too much of something? Like it's almost to me, it seems like a captain can only really get it in the way. Uh, Obviously there are things you can do to facilitate success, but at the end of the day, it's like these guys have to kind of go golf their ball. Um, Like I'm just trying to think of like in 2021, I remember Padre, like I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday, they figured out that one of their pairings played different balls. And I was like, that was kind of like a, how did you guys get this far and not realize it? And that was just kind of an example of like, man, talk about not doing your prep. Like how did this not come up? But like, aside from that, it seemed like Stricker's main thing was just kind of staying out of the way for the most part. So I I guess just to Shane, from what you've, in all your research, do you feel like we kind of make the captainship out to be what it should be that we just never did, or have we kind of gone too far in the other direction now? Yeah, when I when I had my really long interview with Paul McGinley for the book, I asked him that exact question. Like, you're obviously considering this stuff on a very deep level, but it's not like you want to foist all that information onto the players, right? Like that that is such overkill. And what he he kind of used the metaphor, I think I'm getting it right, of like you know, the information is in my head and it stops here or something. Or basically, he's not putting it on the players. For the players, he wants life to be very simple. He doesn't want them thinking about the complicated gymnastics of making the pairings and why this thing works and why this thing doesn't. And he was really good at that. Basically, like, you know, some players like Graham McDowell would like to know that. And so he will kind of share more strategy. Others, like, he used the example of Henrik Stenson. He just wants, like, his marching orders. And then he wants to be able to do his own thing. McGinley's thing was even like, I don't even care if we have dinner together. Like, I mean, so it's like, you know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. He knows part of being a captain, I think, period, is knowing where to be obsessive, how to be obsessive, and then how to simplify it incredibly for your players. And I think like Stricker was amazing at that. I think Davis Love is amazing at that. But it is, you're right. It's an art. So I, my answer to you would be like, we don't make too much of the captaincy, but uh, it's actually a big part of it for them not to make it too much for the players, I think. Yeah, it's it's almost like knowing when not to do much is as counterintuitive as, as that sounds. Like I thought that's what you know, I love Paddy. Um, but I think that's one of the issues that he had during the last Ryder Cup is that he was so he, he, it didn't seem like there was a huge amount of like willing to adapt with what you were seeing, you know, trotting Rory out there all the time, you know, like sticking with certain pairings, the golf ball thing. You know, there was a few different instances there that kept popping up whereas i think you know sometimes these guys just want to play as coach right they just want someone to get out of the way make life easy for them make life simple uh, pair them with the guy they want to play with not you know override the statistics when when they need to sometimes in order to make that happen and um you know it's it's like you don't want to uh, you, you don't want to you want a captain who does that uh, but you don't want one who's too meddling i guess it's you hundred percent. Yeah. Which is why it's like a fine art. I mean, to your point um, with Harrington, I thought from the, I love Harrington too. And I think he's a really great guy and his players all loved him. But I thought from the time he chose to take three captain's picks instead of four, 
you could see exactly what kind of captain he was going to be because it was just statistically the wrong choice, right? <laughs> He's like, and and obviously people were telling him that they have they have some really smart stats people. I'm sure McGinley was telling him that. I mean, like Bjorn, I'm sure everybody, and he still chose not to. So you're like, hmm, okay, that's that's interesting. Uh, and, it, and it followed Joel, right as you were saying, it followed right down the line. We don't know on Tuesday, we don't know what balls our guys are playing. And all of a sudden, oh, we got a problem. We got to switch pairings. Um, so that's all. Yeah, it's all it's all pretty fascinating. Um, guys, do you do you want to do like our uh, captains like in and out segment? Do you want to kind of mind read? I, I know it's only uh, late June, but do you want to take a look at the list and and kind of see who we think's in, who's out? Let's do it. Um, Starting with the Americans, the automatic guys right now are Scotty Scheffler, who is so far in it's crazy. Wyndham Clark, who is also a lock, I think. Brooks Kepka, who actually his position, despite what I said earlier, may be more tenuous than we think if he doesn't have a good British Open. Xander Shoffley, Patrick Cantley, and then Max Homa are the top six. Then you've got going down the list, Bradley, Spieth, Young, Cam Young, Sam Burns, Justin Thomas, Colin Morikawa. Uh, that's through number 12. And the names that are after that start to get like Denny McCarthy, Kurt Kitayama, but then you've got Will Zalatoris, Ricky Fowler, Harris English, Tony Finau, English and Finau both played in Whistling Straits. So I start wherever you want, Joel. Like, who are you looking at as like either somebody who's got to be on the team who's not now or somebody who's close to being on the team who is in actually serious trouble if they don't automatically qualify? One guy that certainly interests me is Denny McCarthy just because – one of the lessons out of 2018 was you didn't pick players that for the profile of the course. And if you kind of remember on the European side, I think it was Bjorn that year was kind of ripped for his captain's picks. And because he picked guys who weren't necessarily informed, he picked experience and guys who would have, who fit the, the, the Paris layout. And obviously we saw how that worked out. So this American team, while it has a lot of talent, the putting is just atrocious up and down the line. Danny McCarthy's guy's been playing really well. And I mean, he's statistically one of the best putters in the world. If you're looking for that 12 spot and again, guys like Cam Young and Sam Burns are still struggling. Like I do wonder if he's the wild card pick that they go, you know what? Like we, we got to take somebody that's in form and that fits, fits this course. And that's why I think is as weird as it sounds to have Denny McCarthy over somebody like Tony Finau or, or again, Sam Burns or Cam Young. I think, Depending on how he does these next five, six weeks, I think he's a name you could be hearing more about. I guess when I look at the American team, I just think of, I guess I, sorry, I guess I disagree a little, Joe, because I just look at like, okay, let's use these picks to round out pairings, you know? So um, to me, like Spieth and Thomas, there's two, it's an easy one. Sam Burns, I know he's not informed, but he's like Scotty Scheffler's best friend. They love each other. They play practice rounds. Like that to me is like, a no-brainer if that helps you get a bit more out of your number one player like get him in there um that's three you know like morikawa and homer played together i know homer's on the fence but like they played together in zurich they've known each other for a long time they're friends there's another there's another problem solved you know then it starts getting a little a little more messy but you know like tony finau is a name that jumps out so um you know then then i guess you can start taking some flyers on guys like ricky but to me the first there's six people who are automatically in. Your next four picks are about complementing those first six to me. How much stock, Luke? So Scheffler and Burns, they did that in the President's Cup, and they were they were bad. Uh, in an otherwise dominant pair session for the U.S., 
how much would that play into it for you? Or would you just kind of say that's, that's one tournament we shouldn't really read too much into it? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I would probably give it another go, right? If nothing yeah. else, it's because you really don't want to be in a situation where, like, Scotty Scheffler is the world number one player and that you have him, like, not super pumped about anything. You know, like if he if he likes playing, there's a very real possibility that Scheffler could just carry a few points just on his own back. If mm. if playing with his best friend helps him, you know, uh, it just helps him a little more. Um, then I feel like that's an easy win. How bad, Joel, would Justin Thomas have to be playing not to make the team? I think he would have to be hurt. I think he's a lock. He is he is this team's heart and soul. Um, he's that guy who gets under the other team's skin. Um, and he's, I mean, his record speaks for itself in, in these events between this and the president's cup. He's been one of the best American players of the past decade. So I don't, he's almost a guy you have to just put the record aside. He's going to be on the team no matter what. Um, I think Spieth is like that too. Uh, so really when we talk about locks, if those aren't in the top six, I think you add those two on, um, really, if you start looking at how bad does someone have to be playing? to not make it, I think the first two names you look at are Burns and Morikawa. I mean, Morikawa is the guy who really has had a struggle as of late, um, currently 12th. And again, if he's 13 or 14th in the standings, I think that's pretty easy to justify him being on. But if it comes down to, if he's down to 17 or 18, is that really that easy of a call? Um, obviously, he's one of the best ball strikers in the world. But if he's that far down, you have – a lot, of, a lot of not only viable names, but big names too that you're not going through in all, you know, all due respect to a, a Danny McCarthy or Kurt Kitayama or even Harris English. But if he's that far down, like, do you feel confident enough making that pick? So Morikawa and I'd throw Cam Young in there too. Those are the two names I'm really kind of interested to see uh, how they play out the next five or six weeks because if they don't show any improvement, I, one of those guys is going to be, I think, sitting at home. You know, another name that really intrigues me is Max Homa sitting at sixth right now. He was such a stud at the President's Cup. And I would think, like, to the point you guys were talking about earlier, he's someone that if you're a captain, you desperately want him to make the team automatically so that you don't have to use a pick on him because that's it's really hard not to use a pick on him, right? I mean, but again, Joel, to me, he's not like Thomas or Spieth. He's somebody that, you know, if he finishes ninth or 10th and he's, and he's on a cold streak, it's much harder to pick Max Homa than it would be to say, well, you know, obviously we're picking Justin Thomas here. Yeah, it's – I know the, the major record for Max gets brought up a lot, but really it's been since they've left the West Coast. He's he's really struggled. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's – I know he's currently in the sixth, but, yeah, you look at those numbers and just a couple of weeks, um, not only with the open up, but the, the playoff events, and they have obviously a lot of points on, on the line there as well. Yeah, you're right. If he's 10 or 11, that's not going to be – great too especially if somebody in the top six is keegan you know again that's it's if it's if it's someone like uh speed or thomas in there maybe it's a little bit easier but keegan bradley takes that uh, top six spot yeah that's just that's another position that the u.s is, is probably making a harder choice on than they they would have to have you would think it's kind of like the ncaa tournament a little bit where if you're on the bubble you want all the favorites to win the conference tournaments the minute the minute the one team that's definitely going to get in doesn't win their conference tournament in a mid-major and that means there's another spot taken. You're like, crap, there goes another spot. And that's like Keegan Bradley's like the spoiler. Like if he gets in the top six, that makes things a lot harder uh, for everybody else who's kind of marginal. Um, Luke, let's go to Europe, man. Um, 
as usual, Europe has the European points and they also have the world points. This time, for the first time, they are also uh, choosing to use six captains picks. So in the European side right now, you've got Rahm and McElroy. Uh, obviously, they're, they're locks. And then the third person on the European list is Yannick Paul. And I don't know who that is. <laughs> who is Yannick Paul? What is Yannick Paul's deal? Man, just a European tour stalwart. I mean, this is the this is the ongoing pain point um, that Europe, I think, is going to have to grapple with. Them adding more captains picks is uh, their way of trying to work around it. But listen, like the DP World Tour runs the European side of the house for the Ryder Cup, and they don't want to create a qualification system that completely leaves the DP World World Tour out of consideration. Um, so you know they they try they try fussing around with, with the rules all the time, but then you get a player like Yannick Paul, no disrespect to a guy like Yannick Paul, but just a week in week out European tour player and a good one, but uh, he's able to rock it up there past a guy like Tommy Fleetwood, who is a PGA tour player, you know, let's say, and grab one of these automatic spots. Um, I think it only be- starts becoming a huge issue when you have it happen more than, you know, more than one or twice, once or twice in a team. But um you know, it's it's just an awkward it's an awkward dance. The European, I think, every qualification system has something awkward in it, and I think mm-hmm. this is the wrinkle on the European side. And on the um, in the world points, you have Raman McElroy leading, but they don't count because they qualify through Europe. Then it's Victor Hovland, Tyrrell Hatton, Matt Fitzpatrick. Obviously, three guys you would want on the team, followed by you know people who are not qualified, but the next in line: Fleetwood, Lowry, Rose, Moronk. Um, yeah, I know. Like, what should we be looking for here, Luke, in terms of like the balance of veterans, like Justin Rose? You know, I, I told you that at the Hero Cup, apparently Moronk and Perez were really impressive to people. Um, what what are they going to do? Like, what is the approach to composing this European team? Yeah, so I think like I was sort of saying like um, you, you, I would really I think I look at two names in Sepp Straka and Seamus Power and think. It'd be really nice if they started playing a little better, even though there is definitely signs of life there. But, you know, those are guys who I would like to see step up and be like consistent presences in this team, right? Um, really, what you're looking for is, again, you're trying to match up pairings, really. Like, Lowry's obviously going to be in this team. He's going to pair with Rory. It's going to be great. Someone like Maron, Constructor, and Power, those are like, plus ones to somebody i think you know justin rose is kind of an old head um but in and but playing well and in a good way so i think like you could in theory pair him with somebody like sep Stracker, and Mm. it's like a nice yin and yang there right a guy who knows the a guy who knows the drill versus a guy who maybe a little early on this team but as Europe, you kind of need to take those flies because you're hoping he's going to be in the next two, three teams. So Rose is going to kind of show him the ropes, for lack of a better word. Um, you know, so that's kind of what I, what I'm what I'm looking for there. But honestly, it would just it, it would really help if like you know Sepp Strakis starts showing some of his like top form from a year ago. Um, let's see. I like that Rose Straka idea. That is, uh, it's outside the box, but it's it's a weird team. But sometimes it's like exactly those teams that end up being Molinari Fleetwood, right? Where all of a sudden you're like, wow, these guys really work together. Who knew? 
Yeah, and see, like that's I think that's that is kind of the luxury when you have some things that you know work. Like if you know Rory and Lowry, I know they didn't have a great World Cup, but they they get along great with each other. You know, they just like playing with each other. Or you know, Rory Hovland, they've played together. But like if you if you start stacking the top of your lineup, you know, you you pair Ram with you know you pair Ram with someone like all of a sudden, like let's say you put Ram and Fleetwood together, and you put you know Rory and Lowry, and then Hovland and like Fitzpatrick suddenly like those are three I know the team is weaker but those are three lineups that like any America would be happy with those with those six players um and then you can just look for a chemistry pair of some sort you know like two guys who like each other who are maybe playing quite well who just want to who just gonna go out and try to make something happen um I think that's where like a Rose Stracker situation may, may pop up um Joel my impression of Matt Fitzpatrick after whistling straights was like, this guy's very talented, obviously, but he is not a pressure performer. <laughs> and he may never win a Ryder cup match. I don't think he's ever going to win a major. And obviously it's been a sea change for Fitzpatrick, not just that he won the U S open, but you know, he's, you know, the Netflix documentary came out and you got to see more of what he's like. And he seems like a pretty cool guy. Um, nobody's talking about him. Like I I'm curious for like, you know, for both of you guys to sound off on Fitzpatrick, is he, now like a Ryder cup force i mean is this is this somebody who strikes fear and you could ask the same about uh hovland right like these guys are kind of they've been sort of like tame figures in the Ryder cup but they're the exact kind of guys that europe needs to just go crazy right like one of them has to be awesome in order for them to win i know his record didn't reflect that at wrestling streets but i thought hovland arguably played outside of rom and sergio he, i think he was the best european he was the third but he was just played really really well he wasn't afraid of the moment uh Talk about a guy who's now been in a couple high-profile situations um, at the majors as well, getting those reps in. Um, there's not a real hole in his game. I, and I, and that, he, that pairs very well with anybody. He, he gets along famously with everybody. Um, I'm with you. Like, right now, he is their third guy, arguably their second guy. Um, they really need a lot from him and Fitzpatrick. Yeah, I, I think, listen, that, that was kind of before he did – Whistling Streets, that was before he did the, you know, weight gain, the, the distance transformation. That that course was just not a good fit for him. Now with the distance as well, he's kind of kept his accuracy as well. Uh, from what we understand how Rome's going to be laid out, I think this sets him up perfectly. Um, listen, I, we can read a lot into those records. I don't think that's an indictment. He's, he's such a different player than what he was in fall of 2021. So they don't even necessarily need to be him to be like a star. They just need him to be solid, and I think you'll see that out of him. Um, and, an, and another guy too, who just continues to put himself in these situations. And, um, I mean, I think what we saw this year, uh, Harbor town, just a, a course that's very hard and very tight. And again, by all accounts, that's how they're going to set up Rome is very, very hard and very tight. That plays their, their strengths. So yeah, he, he's a guy who I think you expect really big things out of. Yeah, it's definitely a little awkward that one of your stalwarts hasn't really performed in a Ryder Cup, but you also have to take it with a grain of salt, like Joel's saying, because when you get smashed at a at an away Ryder Cup for Europe, you know, like nobody's record is gonna is gonna look good um, at, at a certain point. Like it's gonna take some time to recover. And you know, one of the reasons why Europe got smashed and Fitzpatrick's record isn't good is because he was trotted out there and played. You know, he played with Westwood twice, and you know, Poulter played with Roy. So like, you know, there's all these different wrinkles. But when you actually go and look at the at the detail of it, that you can kind of make sense, right? Like, oh, of course, like Fitzpatrick's record isn't great when he played with when he played with Westwood twice, and then you know 
just got unlucky on his singles match and lost one up. Um, so I don't know, like I, I certainly have faith in, in Fitzpatrick. Like he, he does need to play well in this Ryder Cup. Like, let's be clear about that. But um, I don't think his, his, his record is as bad as, as um, it seems. And I definitely agree that he's pushed on a lot since then. Um, there was just a jumping spider that I tried to kill with a $5 bill here. It didn't work out for me. So people are watching me jump around like a maniac. That's why. I, yeah, Luke, I think that's a really good point. The other thing I wanted to say about Europe is I think a really hilarious pairing would be Fitzpatrick and Hatton. Like the very sort of like uh, quiet, like finicky intellectual versus like the visceral angry guy. Uh, I, I just think they would make a hilarious uh, uh, duo there. All right. I think probably we should start wrapping up, but I don't want to forget what could be the best segment of all. Uh, we each came in with a few takes, right? I think the, the format was we we're each going to have like a mild take, very defensible, then a medium take, and then some kind of something a little crazier. Um, I'll lead uh, with the mild take, which is that uh, this is a coverage, a TV coverage take, which is I guarantee you uh, over and over, we're going to hear about how great the Italian fans are and the Italian crowd and how much Italy has embraced the Ryder Cup and how much Rome loves it. And 98 to 99% of the crowd is going to be Americans, British people, and the Irish. Uh, and, and most people in Rome will have no idea that a Ryder Cup is happening in their backyard. So that's my, that's my mild take. I, I, think, I think that's like kind of like a slam dunk. But uh, what do you guys got? Oh, you look. <laughs> as far as my mild take, um, oh, man, I, I, I kind of just brought the spice to be Oh, to bring be the spice by all means, man. So I, I think... Uh, the U.S. team is starting down a, a snake, snake eating its own tail road here. I think um, I think we're getting a few too many of these hot hands jumping into these lock, locking into automatic qualifier spaces, and that's going to start creating a lot of real issues um, for you guys, right? Like you don't want Spieth and Thomas and Morikawa on the outside looking in. And, you know, you, I mean, Keegan Bradley is just a few good events away from cementing his spot in this team. And uh, I think it could get messy here pretty soon. So I, I, think, um, I think the dominoes are starting to fall for Team Yo. So what, what does your cat think? Like, that's, not mine. That's, that's yours, right? So annoyed right now. Oh, it's this cat. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to think of my takes. Oh, one of them was... This is my mild take, although it's going to come off as spicy. I think one of the par three holes uh, they should build a coliseum around, very similar to you know coliseum and room, uh, and not just for fans. I think there should be like tigers and lions uh, in different areas. And if like guys miss the green, like we have somebody giving the thumbs up or thumbs down. I'm not saying like execution, but you know some type of punishment. Like they have to play without a shoe the rest of the. <laughs> just Colin Montgomery in a toga sitting up in the stands with a thumb up or something. <laughs> oh, there goes being able to sleep tonight with that image in my head. Uh, yeah. Coliseum hole. It would, it would knock the stadium hole out TPC out, out of the water. So, yeah, that's Coliseum hole. Complete with ruins and everything, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think it should be a safety hazard is what I'm getting at. <laughs> um okay the other one i had i that's that's next level this is going to sound so boring by comparison but my next one is that rory is going to go one in three and he's only going to win singles the same as whistling straights i've stopped believing in rory mcelroy uh winning anything that matters i mean he what one in three in 2021 and he had a losing record in paris as well right i want to say two and three 
That um, sounds right. I'll fact check you while we're talking here. Um, actually, I have it right here. You're absolutely right. Two and three. Yeah. So, yeah, not, I don't know. I, <laughs> I think Rory, he has been through so much. And I think having his teammates come come to his aid that Saturday night said, what are we doing? He's Rory McIlroy. We're putting him in the leadoff in the Sunday singles. I, I I guess I'm just a sap for these type of things, but I think he comes out and it's just a tour de force in this in this Ryder Cup. I like that. My medium my medium spice take is that I think <clears throat> I think Tommy Fleetwood is going to win the Open. Personally, he's Hoylake. He's a Hoylake kid. Royal Liverpool, you know, born and bred, playing better right now, hitting the ball well, and I think he is going to. Cruise, I think he's going to cruise onto this team because of it and going to solve a bunch of problems for Europe. So um, I think he's going to be, it's not right to call him a, a dark horse, obviously, but I think um, I think he's going to really solidify his place in, in a couple of weeks here. My, my spiciest take is a simple one, and it's that this European team, no matter how we justify it and talk about it, is being held together by duct tape, and the U.S. is going to just just crush them in Italy. Doesn't matter what they do with the course. Doesn't matter how bad the U.S. form is. I think it's going to be the first time in 30 years that the U.S. wins, and I think it's going to be the definitive moment where we go, okay, we can officially say U.S. is the better Ryder Cup team. And uh, I'm not going to go full shipnuck and say that like they're never going to win again, <laughs> but but I think we are. I think he was just ahead of his time, maybe a little bit. Uh, Paris was a weird one. I think Paris was an anomaly. I think this is going to prove out everything that's happened in the U.S. ranks over the past couple of years. See, but you're playing into the boom and bust cycle here. I've been, I've been hearing that Europe is going to get smoked every year. And when, when have two, you? You've won fifty percent of your last Ryder Cups, and you're telling me that we're going to get smoked forever again. It's just the most predictable thing in the world. Yeah, but look, look, this has never, it's never been quite like this before, where a system is in place. Like nobody, anybody who thought the Tom Watson team was going to win was it's, was it's, insane. It's always been like this. It was yeah. Tiger and Phil, and yeah, it was, it was but always, I, I remember when Americans were telling me that um that Europeans should broaden to the rest of the world because the Ryder <laughs> yeah. Cup was going to be so uncompetitive. It's the same story over and over. But again. those are fools, Luke. This is there's real <laughs> there's real Russian. This time it's true. <laughs> uh. <laughs> What do you got, Joel? Whatever it takes. Uh, okay, I got two more. Three more. Uh, there's going to be like a metric. It, there's Someone's going to get screwed up on metrics. Uh, on the metric. <laughs> I'm not sure what that entails, but I think it's Jordan Spieth is the guy that it happens to. Um, so just keep an eye on that. Uh, I think that this is kind of dumb. I don't think this is a spicy take. It's just maybe the truth. <laughs> I think uh, the reason Europe is going to win is because – Honestly, the, the Ryder Cup just comes down to home field, right? Aside from 2012. It's huge. It's huge. Yeah. I mean, and that obviously 2012 was the massive comeback, but also a pretty indefensible collapse together. Like the last away team to truly win was 2004. Um, so, yeah, I know they don't have, Europe doesn't have it. Like the death chart's not great, but I'm, I, I, I did, right now, I think I'd still pick Europe. Europe to win at it. It sinks because as much as we like to talk about the Ryder Cup, I feel like you can distill it down to this simple thing of like, wait, who's the home team? All right, I'm picking them. So uh that's that's one of my takes is that all this doesn't matter is all that matters is who's the home team. A lot of people think that actually they should stop letting them mess with the course for that reason. 
that there should like the president's cup, there should be a neutral body because they're basically saying it's already such a massive advantage to be the home team. So, oh, I think that's part of the the charm of it, though. You know, like it happens in other sports. I think it's great. I think it's just until smart. until you until you have like seven straight Ryder Cups where the score is like eighteen to twelve, right, or, or whatever. Like, it, it, it I agree with you right now, but at some point you do want a competitive spectacle as well. Like, like you like, let's say Europe goes and wins in Italy by five points. Then you're like, okay, what are we doing here? Right. I mean, how do we, how do we get this? So it's not just the home team to Joel's point, blowing them out every single time. I love how Shane is just crafting this reality around him where, where you, where America is going to win every Ryder cup forever. Unless Europe win by five, in which case they should take a look. I'm at the just putting the possibility. I stand by my take. I stand by my take. <laughs> oh, I have one more take. Uh, it's that uh, Bill Mickelson purposely started live, uh, hoping to get a lot of American guys banned, like DJ Bryson Brooks himself, because he put a massive bet on the Europeans uh, and did not consider the more European guys jumping to live. So. It wasn't about leverage. It wasn't about creating a new structure for players. It was all, all for it was a long con for for a Betty place. So that's fantastic. Yeah, I'm I'm I don't disbelieve it. Like if it came out, I would I would just say, yeah, that makes sense. All right, Luke, do you have one more? Oh, do I have one more to let me cook up one real quick? <laughs> you don't have to. You don't have to. We can go. We can go. Oh, I can, oh, I can cook oh, one. Don't up, force sure. the takes. Barata, not that good. No, I'm kidding. I love it. <laughs> there's some lines you don't cross craft craft singles are better than barata oh <laughs> uh, no yeah i think i'll have to I'll, I'll save my spicy takes for next time i'll cook one up let's do it let's call it uh it's been a pleasure fellows we are the Ryder cup radicals and we will see you in probably like a week's time goodbye everybody <laughs> <laughs>